Good day everyone, thank you for joining us and welcome to a brand new episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Today we're going to talk to Momo Vojusic from Viome Biosciences. Momo is co-founder and chief science officer at Viome. Momo studied microbiology at the University of Texas at El Paso. He later got a PhD in biochemistry at the University of Utah. Momo spent most of his professional career at the Los Alamos National Lab, where he studied genomics, metagenomics, and metatranscriptomics with applications on the microbiome. In 2016, Momo left his position at Los Alamos National Lab to found Viome, where he is currently CSO. Without further ado, let's start our conversation. Hello, Momo. Thank you for joining us today. Today, we're going to talk about Viome Biosciences. You know, Viome has been a bit of a sensation. But before we start talking about Viome, let's talk about you, Momo. Tell us about you. What's your story? Where did it start? How do you end up here? Well, I'm a co-founder of Viome with Naveen. We founded the company about five and a half years ago. But the Viome journey really starts about six years before its formation. So in about 2010 is sort of a key key time point in my life in that I was just uh, suffering with a chronic inflammatory condition that some doctors thought it was rheumatoid arthritis, other, other doctors thought it was ankylosing spondylitis, other, other doctors simply called it autoimmune. Uh, none of them really knew what it was, but um, what they knew was that my body was eating itself via some kind of an inflammatory process whose root cause was unknown, and they wanted to give me anti-inflammatory drugs for the rest of my life and destroy the rest of my body. Um, and so I rejected that idea. And I, as a scientist, I had a PhD in chemistry and undergraduate degree in microbiology. And I was very actively involved in uh, tons of research as a, as a scientist, but I also started reading all the literature. And I knew that there was some root cause to this problem. And uh, unfortunately, it took me many years to figure it out. But finally, I figured it out. And it was actually an antigen inside red meat and dairy that is activating my immune system. And so it's a, it's a sialic acid molecule called NU5GC, and it's found in all mammalian products. So if you think of mammals, you know, any animal that produces milk, um, consumption of, of any mammal causes my immune system to just go berserk. And there's a, it's a bit sort of a deeper story uh, scientifically, but that's the bottom line, that I was able to find a diet that absolutely cured me. You know, while my body was deteriorating for about 15 years, after I switched my diet, it took about a year to heal. It was a very slow process because my, my right hip was so badly damaged. It was scraping and, and locking up all the time. So I thought that was going to be for life. But luckily, after a year, it healed, and I haven't had any single problem with any of my joints. So that was that was one big driver of, of what my next you know 11 years would look like. And the second driver was reading the scientific literature, going to scientific presentations, interacting with doctors, interacting with other scientists, made me realize that we are in the dark ages when it comes to implementation of science into our healthcare, literally in the dark ages. So the reason I mentioned dark ages is because the big plague hit Europe in 13th century, right? And at that time, people were dying in masses, and no one knew what was causing it. Literally, we just didn't know. We didn't know what was causing it. We didn't know how to treat it. So it's just this mystery and bad luck. If you had it, it was bad luck. If you, if you, you, know, if you died, bad luck. Well, today, anyone can, can get cancer or multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, and that's literally today considered bad luck because we have no clue what causes any of these diseases. 
And I, as an sort of analytical biochemist and, and a scientist and, and uh, many, many different uh, trades, I, I just reject that idea. I know with 100% certainty that every single chronic disease and cancer have an underlying chemical cause. All we have to do is digitize the human body using some kind of a chemical measurement to understand all the chemicals and all the chemical reactions. And then once we profile healthy people and, and sick people, we can figure out exactly what that transition looks like at the molecular level. And then we now have an opportunity to prevent that from happening. Instead of, instead of waiting for someone to develop Alzheimer's, how about we rewind the clock 20, 30 years earlier and identify the molecular reactions that went crazy you know, decades before, prevent them from going crazy, and then this person will never get Alzheimer's or multiple sclerosis or IBD or any disease. So that was sort of the concept. And so in 2010, I was a principal investigator at Los Alamos National Lab. I had a whole bunch of projects. I was very successful, but I just completely sort of clean slate, reset my, my scientific career because I'd come to realize, come to realize that the human body is actually, uh, the, our health is actually mostly determined by the nutrition and the gut microbiome and oral microbiome and to a lesser extent by our genes. And in fact, over the last 10 years, the literature now has confirmed that, that chronic diseases have a small, very small genetic component. And that was done very elegantly in very large cohorts of humans, but it was also done in very large cohorts of identical twins, where one identical twin develops a chronic disease and the other one does not. And therefore, because they share the same genome, uh, that's not a genetic element. And so... Um, so this is really sort of the last 11 years where the first six years, um, I knew what technology we needed to develop, but it wasn't available. And so I, I turned into basically a technologist and I was able to raise a lot of grant money at Los Alamos National Lab. And for six years, my teams worked really hard to develop this fun, foundational technology that we, we use today at Bio, which is how do you profile a human body where you can clearly tell the difference between health and disease? And I'll touch upon that when we get to DNA versus RNA in a minute. And then um, when the technology was ready for commercialization, you know, I had a very, very clear business vision and, and uh, ideas. Naveen then came to Los Alamos seeking sort of the technology to commercialize and to, to, to revolutionize healthcare. And we just absolutely clicked from, from the first minute um, and, and then we founded Viome in 2016. And now five years later, you know, we went from an office that was empty that I walked into to five years later, we now have clinical labs. We offer products in 93 countries. We have 300,000 customers. We have a global clinical research program with multiple partners, including some big ones. And we have an F FDA breakthrough designation for a diagnostic device for cancer all in five years, you know, 90% of biotech companies would have failed by now and we're absolutely thriving and really accelerating. So really exciting times. And, and I would say the main reason for our successes so far and continuous successes is because our company wasn't formed uh, due to typical reasons why companies are formed. Companies are typically formed for financial reasons. There is someone has an idea, they put some pieces together, they put together a company and then they try to hype it up as much as they can and generate revenue and so on. 
we are like Amazon and like Tesla, those kinds of companies where we know the world we're building. We are building it every day and we will get there it, regardless of barriers along the way. We're very mission driven and nothing can stand in our way that we cannot crush. Even COVID and even the supply chain problems we've had, we just overcame that and we're stronger at the end than we were at the beginning. So that's Viome in a nutshell. That's a wonderful origin story, if you, if, if I may say that. I, I love that and I, I find it extremely inspiring when founders uh, such as yourself make something fantastic based on a personal experience or a personal ailment. In, in your case, you had that inflammatory disorder and you actually work towards finding a solution and then expand that and, and come up with, with a fantastic uh, fantastic project uh, and, and a fantastic company that will hopefully help other people as well. And that's exactly the point. The point is that I was lucky in that uh, uh, my persistence is unmatched by anyone. I am gonna. I'm gonna look at every corner of the world, every paper ever published. I'm gonna talk to everyone to find out what the truth is. So, and and I have scientific background. So for me, I was lucky in that the mechanism of this molecule, new 5GC, was already discovered in mice. It was. I was lucky that I was very well read and understood all the scientific literature. This kind of stuff is not accessible to most people, first of all. And second of all, we're still unraveling the mysteries of the gut microbiome and human body. So we really need a lot of technology. I was basically lucky uh, to have found what caused me uh, my problem. But, you know, be before that, I was blinded like most people are today where they try different diets. You know, they're trying a, one diet after another and, you know, they experience these ups and downs and they're very frustrated. I was in the same boat until I hit the ketogenic diet. Uh, that was the last diet I tested because after three months of ketogenic diet, I noticed my memory was starting to really decline, like severely decline. My memory was sort of the, the best part of my mind before I, I remembered everything. And all of a sudden, my memory was being lost. And I luckily realized, wait a minute, maybe it's the ketogenic diet, even though everyone says this is the best thing and it's going to cure everything, right? And now, I, you know, later when I found out what was actually causing my problem, and the fact that it's found in red meat, you know, on a ketogenic diet, you consume large amounts of red meat. And so um, it, it's just, it's a longer story again. But, you know, these fad diets, they're completely non-scientific. Just because some people benefit from a diet, it doesn't mean that everyone will. And that's exactly why we don't have one diet that's, that's best for everyone. There are people who are hardcore Mediterranean diet and ketogenic diet, and now there's carnivore diet, and there's all these diets, right? They all think that they're the best for everyone. That's absolutely not the case. We have 300,000 customers in 93 countries, and our computers have recommended 300,000 diets. There are no two humans that get the same diet, and that's because everything is based on data. It's not based on someone's belief or anecdotal evidence or what they've experienced, right? So that's the new world. I, I completely agree. I think we are so far beyond the reductionist models of, you know, one one medication fits everyone or one diet fits everyone, and, and we're right into that age where individualized medicine has become more more accessible i would say because of you know the the revolution in, in computer science artificial intelligence and basically large data analysis so let's talk about a little bit more about viome you know i always find it beautiful when when i read you know the mission statement and 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 um, talking about making disease optional that is certainly, you know, the ultimate goal. If we could do that, we would we would all retire <laughs> as physicians. But let's break it down, you know, and, and make it a little bit more concrete. Looking at Viome, doing some of the, the research that I've done on Viome so far, there are 
two, I think, overarching things that, that the company is doing. And the first one is cancer diagnostics, cancer screening, and it's basically for oral, pharyngeal, and laryngeal cancer. And that's where the FDA breakthrough approval uh, happened. Really fantastic, fantastic work on there. And then the, the other side is the microbiome and microbiome-guided therapies uh, through diets, probiotics to manage mostly gut symptoms, but also other symptoms. And like you're saying, maybe inflammatory diseases as well. Is, is that accurate or am I misrepresenting the, the picture? Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, uh, that's, that's, that's accurate, but it's only a very sl- small sliver of what we do. So, so think of the App Store and the Apple platform, right? The App Store is a platform that consists of hardware, meaning iPhones and iPads, right? And now computers and software that power that platform. And then you have 2.2 million applications today on that app store, okay? What you described are two applications on our platform. One application is diagnostics for oral and throat cancers, and the other one is a wellness application where people can test their stool, blood, and soon saliva and receive personalized diet and supplement recommendations and even purchase the supplements, right? So those are just two apps so imagine our platform like a, an iDevice, but it's a Vi device because our, our platform is called Vi OS instead of iOS, right? So Vi operating system. And so Viome Life Sciences is a platform company, and, and it's, it's such an incredible and beautiful thing that, that has been envisioned and now executed, which is it's an open access platform, just like the Apple App Store, which means that we have developed, for example, the wellness application with supplements and, and at-home tests. But the application on oral cancer and throat cancer was developed in partnership with uh, Queensland University of Technology. We're currently developing with partners several additional applications on top of this platform, while at the same time improving and adding pieces to the platform and inviting the whole world to gain access to this platform. And so if a partner says, hey, I want to I want to use this platform. You guys have spent 11 years and 200 million dollars to build this platform. Why would I even try to write grants and organize all this? The amount of work that has gone into this platform is so immense. There's no books that can describe it, right? So it's a turnkey platform that anyone can plug into and use it. And that can be done in several ways. Someone for example can create their own company and we will enable them to succeed completely where they can leverage all of our technology. Someone who already has a company or has an institute can come work with us and partner with us. And that's our preferred method because it really synergizes the clinical component with the scientific component. We bring the science and technology. When we work with clinicians, magic happens very quickly. But th- there's also other ways where we actually contact others and, and try to partner with them and, and uh, explore the, the, the possibilities. So we literally have an, a grants program where if you are a clinician and you, you really want to solve a clinical problem, but you don't have time to write grants and receive grants and hire people and develop the technology and have a lab and all that stuff, right? You can literally apply on our website on our grants program website, you apply and you say, hey, this is who I am. This is what I would like to do. This is what I would like to develop. These are the clinically relevant products I would like to develop. Our scientific committee will review those and we can actually grant 100% in-kind funds to perform that whole project without you spending a dime, right? And so we're going to enable clinicians and hospitals to actually do things that they have never been able to do 
by giving them access to this platform. So that's really the power where we're going to exponentially grow the power of this platform by giving open access to the whole world, just like the App Store has. Imagine how limited the App Store would be if Apple kept it to, the, to itself and only limited to the apps that they can develop internally. That would be such a disservice to the world. But they were they're very good, and so they opened up the whole platform. So that's the summary. How cool is that? That sounds amazing. Uh, to be honest, that sounds incredible, and I, I can't wait to to actually access that. I I, I have not accessed that yet. But biolifesciences.com um, slash grants. All right, that's it. <laughs> Super simple. All right, yeah. As soon as this is over. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about you know the technology that makes all this possible, um, and the technology yeah. that I, I guess Viome was was built yeah. upon, and and you know yeah. we read about meta transcriptomics, you know the yeah. the the revolution or or the hype initially was a f- you know a few years ago or maybe even a few decades ago about genomics and uh, and and genomic yeah. mapping and all that, but now we're talking more about RNA than DNA. Yeah. And, you know, let, let, let's talk about that a little bit. I'll let you, uh, the expert, talk about it. Yeah. So so the promise of genomics back in the 90s when the Human Genome Project started was once we sequence the human genome, we're going to unlock all the secrets to diseases and cancers and we're going to solve all the problems, right? And we're going to be disease-free in 20 years. Well, 20 years later... Um, the disease burden is generally higher than it was 20 years ago. So we've done the opposite, right? And the reason goes back to my initial statement that genomics and genetics plays a minor role in chronic diseases, not a major role. And that's why we haven't solved any of the problems. And so really now the world needs to shift, and it is shifting away from genetics and genomics to really um, the epigenetics, which is not genomics, and that is the influence of diet and environment and microbiome on our physiology. Right, and so I'll I'll paint I'll paint the picture of how important uh, RNA is and how non-important DNA is in, in some really really uh, uh, clear examples for the audience. So let's start with the human part, the human side. So everyone knows that we have kidneys and we have heart and liver and brain, right, as tissue as organs in our body. What most people don't realize is that every single cell in every one of those organs. Is ex- has the exact same copy of the DNA that they inherited from their parents, right? So what that means is that the DNA that you inherit from your parents and that you have in every one of your cells has the potential to be a kidney, has the potential to be a brain, has the potential to be a liver, but you, you don't know that if you sequence the DNA. You just don't know. You say it could be any of these things, but you don't know which one it is, right? So that's one thing. The more important thing is when that liver... develops NAFL, the the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or when that intestine develops IBD, the DNA content is exactly the same as it was when the tissue was healthy. So sequencing the DNA cannot tell you whether the tissue is healthy or diseased. If you're going through an IBD flare, your your RNA, meaning the expression profile, I'll get into that in a second. So let's stick with DNA for a second. So DNA through health and disease is the same. In fact, 12,000 years after you die, if they find your DNA and sequence it, they'll be able to tell you, hey, this was this guy. So even dead DNA is still the same DNA. It hasn't changed. You can't even distinguish whether an organism was or dead or alive, right? We can sequence DNA from microbes that died 10,000 years ago. So when you find DNA in stool or saliva or blood, 
The first question is, was that really just DNA or was there a micro, microorganism there? And the answer is, I have no idea. I just sequenced DNA. So that's how weak and useless DNA is, right? Okay, now let's go to RNA. So RNA, when, when DNA, DNA which holds genes, when it gets activated, meaning expressed, then it gets converted into RNA and then it gets converted into a protein. So RNA means, production of RNA means, aha, a gene is now active. So if you look at the 23,000 genes that our cells encode, the active genes in the kidneys are vastly different from the active genes in the heart and the liver and the brain, vastly different. And that is what makes brain versus kidney comparison different. If you sequence the DNA of a person's kidney and brain, you'd say, well, I don't know which one's which. If you sequence the RNA of kidneys, kidney and, and the brain, it will be black and white different, right? Because different genes are activated. Now let's cross over to the microbial and, and the same thing in disease and health. If you see, so this has been done in fact and published in well-documented literature. If you take a biopsy of a, an inflamed tissue from, an, from a person who is undergoing an IBD flare and, and then do the same thing for that same person when they go into remission, the difference in the gene expression profiles is black and white right? The RNA is completely different because now you have completely different processes that are causing inflammation, whereas their DNA is the same because it's the same person. Now we go to the microbial world and we often ask, often people ask, hey, you know, are there bad bacteria, good bacteria? You know, some people say this is a bad bacteria and this is a good bacteria and what's going on, right? This is confusing. Okay, well, you read a publication and you, and you find out Clostridium difficile is a very beneficial bacterium because it's producing butyrate. But then you read papers that say, well, Clostridium difficile just killed 10,000 people in the United States. So how's that possible? Well, again, if you look at the DNA of the Clostridium difficile that's beneficial to you and producing butyrate, and you look at its DNA when it's actually killing you, it's the same DNA. That DNA codes for genes that can either provide you with nourishment or can kill you. But which genes are expressed, you have no idea by sequencing DNA. With RNA, those two states, again, are black and white. The, the behavior of the, of the microbe and the gene expression profile is completely different. And so really, if you, and the last example I'll give you is Fecalibacterium presnitzii, for example. So that's sort of a, you know, uh, uh, one of the most important uh, microorganisms in the gut microbiome. And so people, other companies or other entities will do a DNA-based test, like a 16S test or a metagenomic test, and, and, and give you a report and say, great news, you have Fecalibacterium presnitzii, you have a great butyrate production. They, in fact, have no data, zero data, that that Fecalibacterium presnitzii is produ producing any butyrate whatsoever. All they know is that Fecalibacterium presnitzii is there. It has a potential to produce butyrate, but only if you feed it certain foods. If you don't give it the raw materials to produce butyrate, it sure will not be producing butyrate. It can't produce butyrate out of thin air, right? And so this is really the, the main distinguishing feature is that the viome tests, all viome tests, are actually looking at the behavior of the bacteria, the functions of the bacteria, not just who is there and what their potential is, because that's useless. Many people who are sick have Fecalibacterium presnitzii, but they're not giving it the right food. And so they don't get the butyrate benefit. And so they're sick. Mm -hmm. So that, that's why the, micro, the promise of the microbiome over the last decade has really not been great because we've been using the wrong tool. And now we have the right tools. Unfortunately, RNA sequencing that we have at Viome is very expensive. It's very 
our, no one wants to work with Arne, but Arne and I are very friends. We go a long way back to first first day of my grad school was already introduction to Arne. And everyone was like, well, you're crazy to work with Arne. DNA is so much easier to work with. I know it's easier, but RNA is so much more important. And so I'm going to take my time. It's going to take a long time. And, you know, in 2010, when I envisioned Viome, I knew this was going to be like a lifelong journey. It's not going to be some quick and dirty. Let's just, you know, publish some papers, become famous and be done. No, it's a lifelong journey, but that's okay. Uh, difficult problems require lots of work. Wonderful. I, I absolutely love that, you know, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. RNA does give you a better um, a better indication about what is happening right now. But isn't that also an issue? Do you see any variation, for example, in the RNA profile, for example, for someone between day and night, for example, or if they eat something or if they don't eat something, if they're fasting, they're not fasting. Um, if we're talking about the microbiome, I'm sure that there are differences based on, for example, like cortisol levels, uh, whether the patient ate a carbohydrate-rich meal or a whatever-rich meal or what type of diet they're on, maybe even physical activity. Um, how, how do these factors play into um, the RNA sequencing and uh, meta-transcriptomic? Yeah. Yeah. So what we what so so right now we have direct to consumer stool test and blood test and and we're we're getting ready to launch a saliva test. So that's going to be sort of like the trio of tests that are going to be used for direct to consumer. We have about fourteen different tests that we use for clinical research, um, and so we've established lots of these uh, criteria. And so, for example, saliva and, and blood, we ask everyone to collect while fasting, because a meal will in fact disturb the expression profile of the genes, certain genes, but different meals will do, do it to a different extent, which is not great for machine learning. And so we want to have that fasting baseline. So everyone who collects saliva and blood, they're supposed to collect it first thing after waking, but no later than an hour later, right? So that we don't experience the changes in the gene expression um, due to feeding. Now, when it comes to stool, it was very surprising. There are two things that we found, and both of these things are clinically validated on our CLIA license, and they're actually published in peer-reviewed articles. One surprising thing is that stool is actually a homogeneous matrix. So we had volunteers poop and then collect a sample from what we call the head and the tail and the middle of the poop, right? Um, and we did that with multiple volunteers, and we established that regardless of where you collect the sample, it's essentially the same. So that was kind of cool, right? Um, the second thing is, um, does, does feeding affect the, the gut microbiome transcriptome? And it doesn't. To a large extent, it doesn't. So we carried out a small clinical study where we asked seven people to essentially maintain the same diet for two weeks, and we collected longitudinal samples, and we observed very, very minor differences, basically within the normal fluctuation of an, of an ecosystem. And so our conclusion is that the metatranscriptome is stable over time unless there's large changes to the diet. Now, when we had people switch from a Mediterranean diet, we, we identified volunteers that were normally eating Mediterranean diet, and then we switched them to a ketogenic diet for four days. Now we did observe significant changes the, in the microbiome, right? So it took about four days for the microbiome to start changing in about seven days for it to really adopt to the ketogenic diet, right? So seven days is sort of that. So based on the literature, based on our data, the way I would like everyone to think about this is that the microbiome is a community 
where there's so much interplay between the members and there's so much cross-feeding, meaning, you know, I just gave an example of Fecalibacterium prasnitzii. Fecalibacterium prasnitzii actually doesn't process the foods that you consume. It actually produces, pr- processes the byproducts of other bacteria. So depending on which other bacteria you have and what you feed them, determines the feeding of the Fecalibacterium prasnitzii. So it, it uses acetate to make butyrate. And that acetate can be produced by either a certain bifidobacterial strain or certain bacteroides strains. Anyways, so there's this microbial community with about a thousand species where you have, some of them are harvesting the foods more efficiently that you can, that you ingest, but they're producing then secondary metabolites or byproducts that are being consumed by the rest of the community. And all of them have already adjusted their gene expression profile, just like your kidneys don't change their gene expression profile every day. This community is stable. It does not change its gene expression profile. And and there are two reasons for that. One is they're all nicely working together, meaning they're going to they're going to have more defense against newcomers. They don't want to, to change that. And that's why naturally our gut microbiome prevents infections, right? And that's why when we consume antibiotics and we kill the microbiome, that's when we get infections like from fungal pathogens or Clostridium difficile and things like that, right? So you probably know that, and most people know that, that it's it's really antibiotics that cause many of these infections because you kill off your microbiome. So they've established a nice equilibrium, and it's in their interest to not continuously change the gene expression because it costs a lot of energy to destroy all your RNA and then rebuild it every meal, right? That, that would be... That would be disadvantageous to expend so much energy on simply reshaping yourself every three, four hours, right? So they have this nice gene expression profile that's stable. That's one thing. The second thing is that eventually when volume services become so inexpensive that they're going to be basically be given free to everyone, meaning whoever's paying for for someone's insurance, uh, sorry, for someone's healthcare, that payer is going to be offering volume services for free to the payees, all of a sudden, we're going to be able to do longitudinal study, longitudinal monitoring, where every three months, we're going to deeply digitally profile every human so that over time, we can observe these changes as they go through their life and age. Wonderful. It's a great insight, and it makes complete sense that it would take just a few, I mean, just putting a bacteria in a, in a culture dish, in a Petri dish, it would take it three, four days to grow until you can kind of speciate and all that. So it, it would probably take uh, the composition of the microbiome time to change. Um, and I love the analogy of, of a community of, of bacteria kind of working together in harmony, which, you know, makes makes a lot of sense. Just a technical question, and, and you don't have to take much time on this, but do you guys do also DNA sequencing or just RNA sequencing? The kits, is it just RNA? So currently, we only do DNA sequencing for research and for a very narrow spectrum of projects. So the only project really where we are going to be doing DNA sequencing is for pancreatic cancer patients, where we may be able to utilize the fact that some microorganisms that that live in the uh, small intestine they die by the time they reach the colon, but their DNA is still there, we can actually detect them. And so th- those are very specialized research projects. But no, for, for consumer services and for 99.999% of research, it's all RNA. Now, we are adding additional technologies to our platform. Uh, re- one of my main jobs is to maintain and improve the current platform, the VIOS, right? And so one of the things we're doing currently is we're adding a proteomic platform. It's a multiplexed immunoassay where we can actually... Uh, quantify specific proteins in human blood that are not actually produced in blood. 
And so we're talking about insulin, for example, that's produced in pancreas. We're talking about CRP that's produced in the liver. We're talking about um, lipopolysaccharide binding protein that's produced in the intestines and in the liver. So these are the proteins that are found in blood. They play a very important role in our health, but we don't have access to their quantity via RNA sequencing because they're not in fact produced in blood. So we're going to, we're going to add that on and we're going to keep, you know, we're starting with a 50, uh, 50, the, tar, the, the, the 50 targets. And also, for example, a very important part of the, uh, our well-being is our interaction of the immune system with the foods. And so we're going to be adding a food sensitivity panel test. So here we're going to be quantifying basically the IgG content against specific foods. And this is, Again, a long story, but I'll make it very short in that these tests have been available for decades. They have made a huge difference in some people's lives. They have not made any difference in other people's lives. And because of that sort of mixed result, they've been rejected by the medical community, right? So, but the main reason the main reason uh, to, to pursue them for us is because they do make a huge difference in some people's lives. And if we can tease apart exactly under what circumstances they can actually improve health, then we can actually add mathematical formulas to those data and then help people live better lives. So we don't want to forfeit it just because it doesn't always work. Great. Just uh, also another technical question. Can you speciate with RNA? Yeah. So great question. Not only can we speciate, we can actually, not we can, we do. Our native bioinformatic analysis identifies the genome sequence present in the sample, right? And that's because we're not measuring RNA as a whole molecule like microarrays. We're actually sequencing RNA, which is a copy of DNA. So we get 300 base pairs of RNA sequence, which was copied from DNA. So we get strain, you know, there used to be, uh, you know, bacteria and, and all microorganisms used to be classified by strain and isolate. They were given these artificial names of strains and isolates. Now the whole world, the, the whole community is moving towards genomes, meaning We've identified the presence of this specific genome. It doesn't really matter what people have called it. What really matters to us is what are the genes there and which ones are expressed and to what degree? And how do those gene functions affect our health and disease? That's really the level of bioinformatics that we perform. So yes, we can do highest resolution taxonomic classification, meaning genome level or strain level, however we want to you know, bin it. And... Um, and, and, um, and then we can do, obviously, global gene expression analysis for both human and microbial genes. Wonderful. That's extremely exciting, you know, hearing that, that you can do all that um, with, uh, with RNA technology. In one test. And then, yep. so you talked about that, you know, nothing will stand in your way. And, and you know, I, I love that. I love that mentality. But what stands in your way? What are the biggest hurdles that you see are in the way of this technology and how will they shape up in the next few years? Yeah, so nothing is in the way of the technology. We have all the technology we need to solve all these problems. Currently at Viome, we are only limited by money. So we are still a startup. We're living off venture capitalist money um, until we become profitable. But when we become profitable and when we are no, no longer worried about money, we're going to run into the same problem that, for example, Apple is facing today and Google is facing today, which is um, qualified people, right? People with that mindset, the entrepreneurial mindset, um, so people, you know, you're saying it's funny that I say nothing can stop us. You know, so many investors have asked us, you know, what are your failure points? Like, what can make you fail? And I say nothing. And they laugh. They say, well, everyone can fail. I say, no, that we cannot fail. It's like, it's, it's just not possible because 
we are not motivated by money. We're not motivated by things that are that other that motivates other people, right? We're motivated by our mission, and we are absolutely not going to fail because we are tuning every single day all the science and business that we're doing so that we absolutely ensure that we don't fail and we don't have to make risky moves like others do where they're now endangering their entire business for the short-term gain, right? We don't have to do that. And the the whole company culture understands that and people are really shocked when they hear that. And also the entire sort of social cloud that, that exists around us, like our partners, our investors, our board members, they all understand that. And so... You know, I'll give you a really funny example that's very short, which is that, you know, we just had a, a board meeting recently and one of the new board members came and we had a two hour board meeting and we presented one hour and 54 minutes of science and six minutes of financials. Right. And afterwards, his comment was, I have been on boards for more than 30 companies over the last 30 years. I have never even heard of a board meeting like this, like not even heard of it, much less participated in one. A typical board meeting would be an hour and 54 minutes of financials and income and revenue and all that. And then, oh, by the way, we are doing science, right? So you guys are completely the opposite. How did you pull that off? Well, it's very systematic from the very beginning. You know, an investor approaches us and they say, Oh, I'm excited. I want to invest. And then we tell them the rules of the game. You know, we don't know when we're going to go public. We don't know when we're going to make you money. You cannot control us and you cannot tell us what to do, but you can help us succeed. And when we do go public and become the biggest company in the world, you're going to make a ton of money. You just have to be patient for it. They don't like that upfront, but then they realize how serious we are, how well we execute. And then, you know, now we have people fighting for money to give us. So it's a, it's a, it, it, it works. You just have to have the grit. The only thing to fear is fear itself. Exactly. I mean, you know, it would be ridiculous to ask Elon Musk, for example, you know, how are you going to fail? It's just, he's not going to fail. Elon Musk is never going to fail. He's only going to succeed because every decision he makes, he doesn't care about money. Money doesn't motivate him, right? He is motivated by making humanity a better place. And when you have that with every decision, every conversation, every action, um, yeah, failure then is not an option. Wonderful. So, you know, every health tech company has to make a decision about who their target consumer is going to be. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of tech companies can choose to market for physicians um, and get to the cons the ultimate consumer, which is a patient through the physician, or they can actually go and market to the physician directly. Um, and I guess Viome is marketing to the to the consumer directly, to the patient directly. So how, how do you see the technology benefiting these patients, these patients that are fighting, you know, getting these kits? Yeah. So just remember the structure of IOM, right? We have the platform and we have these different apps, right? And so the current app that is Viome.com, that's just an app of our platform. And that app is direct to consumer. There is no doctors involved, right? The second app that we're building, which is this cancer diagnostics, we're going to be offering to the doctors and we're going to be offering it to the patients directly, right? So that's both. Um, there's going to be other apps that are going to be vaccines or therapeutics or other diagnostic tools or companion diagnostic tools that are going to have a variety of, 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 of target audiences. So it just depends. You know, we don't have any preconceived notion. Um, our objective always is to, con to translate the science into something that's going to impact human lives and make people live better lives. And the reason we're launching this cancer diagnostic test is very simple. It's the first diagnostic test that, can, that has the highest sensitivity for early stage oral and throat cancers that are very treatable. 
meaning you can just excise them with a routine biopsy and that person will not die. Whereas today, the standard of care is you can only really detect oral and throat cancers when they are in stages three and four, at which point in time, the mortality, the the death rate is very high, right? So we did a health economics calculation for the FDA. And this test, the day that it comes to the market is going to start saving lives. That is the mission of IOM, is to improve people's lives and, and stop the suffering and save people from unnecessary death. So that's why we've prioritized that. And we may have a format that's direct to consumer. We may have a format that's direct to clinician. Those are sort of details, you know, that I don't have to worry about. <laughs> Luckily. All right. So in a nutshell, because we're kind of running out of time, um, what role did physicians play in building and supporting your endeavor? Well, we are surrounded by a cloud of physicians. You know, our, clin- our chief medical officer is an endocrinologist. Um, we have absolutely world-class physician scientists as our advisors, you know, from UCLA, Dr. Emeron Meyer, from OHSU, Dr. Jim Rosenbaum, from Imperial College London, Dr. James Kinross, a whole bunch of other, uh, you know, physician scientists who are well-published, well-understand the science. And so we are not pretending that we are clinicians here. We are technologists and scientists at Viome, right, Viome Life Sciences, um, we work with clinicians and we design protocols and we recruit patients, and, but, but they help us design these protocols. They help us interpret the data. And most importantly, they guide us in what is important. You know, I mean, I'll just give you a very simple example. We have now a very good companion diagnostic test that can tell people up front whether they're going to respond to metformin or not. It's a state-of-the-art test. The, 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 the paper is under review, but the preprint is available. But the endocrinologists say, you know what, no one's going to pay for that test because metformin is so cheap that you're just going to prescribe everyone with diabetes type two, you know, metformin. And in six months, you're going to find out if it works or not. And you're going to spend pennies. You don't care about a fancy test. And so, you know, we, we definitely work very closely with the medical community because we're not clinicians. We're scientists and technologists. How, how can physicians be more involved? The absolute number one way that they can be more involved is to apply for the grants program and help us work on clinical research programs, right? They see patients all the time. They get medical data all the time, health data all the time. All they have to do is literally we've set up programs where a physician has to give like a business card to a patient and say, here, there's an exciting study please consider participating, right? That's literally the minimum amount of work that they need to do. They don't need to go through grants. They don't need to go through IRBs. They don't need to hire coordinators. We will hire coordinators if they need them on site. That's it. And so they can recruit heavily patients for us with, you know, interesting diseases. We're currently focusing our efforts. 80% of Viome efforts are focused on gastrointestinal diseases from the mouth to the anus. Second is metabolic diseases. So we're talking about obesity, type 2 diabetes, um, uh, insulin resistance, uh, NAFLD, things like that. And third is, even though it's it's neurodegeneration field, it's really, we're focused very, very specifically on mild cognitive impairment. So our focus is, as the low-hanging fruit, is to identify people with mild cognitive impairment and revert them back to healthy so that they do not go into Alzheimer's disease. That is a huge, huge goal of ours. So yeah, any physician interested in solving this problem We'd love, love, love to work on those.
Wonderful. We'll add the link to uh, the grants page, the description of the podcast. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Wonderful. So, you know, I could talk to you for probably two, three hours and not be done, but unfortunately we're running out of time. Um, Let's finish on a a little bit of a lighter note Um, on your journey. What's the funniest story that has happened to you? Well, there are many, but I'll give you one funny story that I give to people. So when Naveen came to La Salamis Lab, National Lab to look for commercializable technologies, right? Um, we organized a shark organized a Shark Tank. Yeah, Shark Tank is this you know show where people come and pitch ideas to entrepreneurs and and seek investments, right? So that's exactly the format we organized for scientists at Los Alamos National Lab to pitch to Naveen, right? And so Naveen was in the audience. He was the shark, and and we were presenting. And so Naveen had already reviewed like 100 plus proposals and he selected 12 and I was one of those 12. So we had a full day to present. And so um, the funny part was um, how scientists who are clearly way smarter than I am, right, way more intelligent than I am, way more accomplished than I am, uh, were incapable of presenting to Naveen what is it that they're trying to commercialize, right? And so to me, it was funny because uh-huh. Naveen is as sharp as people get, right? The, the sharpest knife in the drawer. He gets things super quickly. But when you have a person coming in and talking about like fluorescent states of individual molecules and, you know, all kinds of physical chemistry phenomena, right? After five minutes, Naveen, <laughs> Naveen gets all agitated because he's like, I have no clue what this guy's talking about. And so he's like, sorry, sorry, sorry. I know I'm not supposed to interrupt, but I'm sorry. Where's the product? What are, where's the business? What are we selling? <laughs> and so the guy's like, okay, okay, I'll get to that. And then he goes back to his graphs and, you know, unlabeled axes and all these fluorescent states. And I mean, he's like, I'm sorry, I have no idea. What are we selling here? <laughs> and so I just continuously <laughs> laughed. And unfortunately, um, this is also has a sad side in that I think that if we taught scientists entrepreneurship and taught uh, you know doctors entrepreneurship, they could easily translate their daily activities into business. And they could, in fact, what I did, right, in 2010, when I started you know, reset my scientific career. And when I went with the scientific process, it was purely scientific. But with that business goal in mind, every decision that I, every scientific decision that I made had a business decision incorporated in it for six years. So that when I presented this to Naveen, it was like, I get it. This is awesome. This is great. Let's start the company. Right. And, and, and had I, had I carried out the research in the typical way, which is, oh my God, I have to publish papers. Oh, my quarterly report for the sponsor is coming up next time. Oh, I have to write this grant. I have to get preliminary data for that grant. If I had to worry about those things, I would have presented exactly the same story to Naveen that everyone else did, which is, yeah, there's a whole bunch of scientific mumbo jumbo, but I don't know what to do with that, right? So I think that's a huge gap in today's scientific community that we really need to, and and medical community, we need to teach scientists and physicians this business side of everything. And I think the world will be a better place. Wonderful. I, I love that because to be honest, that's the mission statement of, of the, this project right here is to uh, get to physicians. Voila. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> get to physicians and, and give them the idea about how to build a startup. To let them hear from uh, some of the people who successfully done it like you. 
um, and, and to hear the business side of it. So it's th that's a wonderful answer. It's a wonderful story. Wonderful way to um, end the interview. Thank you so much, Momo. This has been a, a super, super interesting conversation. Again, thank you. My pleasure. Love it. <laughs> and that concludes our fifth episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or suggestions, please do not hesitate to contact me personally. You can reach me at my LinkedIn, Twitter, or email. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It'll really help us out in creating additional content.